1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is a National Board Certified English teacher, as well as an Advanced Placement Language teacher and International Baccalaureate Literature teacher.
0: Gary is an APIB Psychology and History teacher, a guitar player, as well as my husband. Before we get into another timeless classic of American literature, Raisin in the Sun, I do want to bring up another fun fact. I hope you've been listening to our podcast from the beginning. And if you have, I hope you've noticed the evolution of our process. Hopefully, we're getting better and better in our delivery, Uh, and that's a little beside the point. But I was wondering if you've noticed our music. Gary is making these little diddly-doos to play with each piece. And although we didn't do this with Scarlet Letter, starting with Fahrenheit 451 and now with Raisin... The diddly do music is supposed to reflect something in the story, so pay attention to the diddly doo he created for raisin as we get started. It's fun because we think reading these books is fun.
1: Uh, can you explain what a diddly do is?
0: A diddly do is doesn't merit the title song, but <laughs> it's <laughs> but it's not. Um, uh, nothing. So it's a. It's oh, okay,
1: okay, good. Uh, which proves my point. You have no idea what a diddly do is. Uh, it's actually just background music, interlude music. Nothing more complicated. Don't insult. Than that. I okay. think
0: diddly do is a new word, and it should be incorporated.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, it's fun. Um, now, uh, Raisin in the Sun is a particularly important book historically, but in some ways, there has never been a book so utterly American in its expression. Um, On the surface, it's about an African-American family's struggle to get out of the ghetto on Chicago's south side. However, uh, Hansberry wrote a timeless classic, and the beauty of the play is that it is not a simplistic morality story about the evils of racism, although this is no doubt an important idea within. Um, If this were the case, it would be one of the many that have taken up that mantra. Instead, it explores the complexity of African-American identity as it struggles to understand uh, and explore what those two things mean and how to reconcile its history and place in American society. Uh, It discusses the the challenges of conflict within humanity that includes but far supersedes issues of race. And she does this by zeroing in on particulars of a localized African-American family living and struggling in American urban poverty. Uh, She was both an exposer of injustice as well as an optimist in man's resilience. Uh, James Baldwin famously referenced this in the introduction to Hansberry's book, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, when he said that never before in American theater history has so much of the truth of black people's lives been seen on stage.
0: Uh, That's true. Hansberry wanted very much to be a voice of her generation, both as a woman and as a black American. Uh, there's a very strong case being be made that she changed the landscape of American theater by writing a story about African Americans in which all Americans really saw themselves. When it was first performed in 1959, this was the first reaction that the critics said. But I think it speaks uh, to a broader audience that transcends America or Americanism, if if that's really a word. And I'm very proud of it because of its trans uh, transcendence. This very tightly constructed play holds its own, I think, uh, on the merit of a worldwide scale because it expresses the complex the complexity of a world full of conflict. It doesn't matter. What country you call your home. Uh, We all have Walters in our lives. Benithas and Mamas and Ruths. And we have annoying neighbors like Mrs. Johnson. And we have immoral exploiters like Willies and idiot friends like Bobo. And more importantly, every group or every country or every people have outside groups that are trying to assert power over other peoples that they see as vulnerable or maybe weaker. Uh, I think it's kind of small-minded to sit here and envision a world where only America struggles with tensions of race. And I really think you cannot judge this book only in that context. Uh, My youngest daughter, Lizzie's two best friends, are first-generation Americans, and one is a Kurd and the other is Somali. And they came to this country over issues of race that did not have anything to do with America's racial history. Uh, my oldest two daughters, her closest friends, one one's from India and one is from Palestine, respectively, same thing. So these conflicts of race and interpersonal relationship between people far exceed the American experience, as does her book. Since Cain and Abel, um, humans have struggled to reconcile what I would call the immorality of harming others, And creating unfair systems of power. And they've had many names over many thousands of of years. But these are the struggles that are at the heart of this play. And you're going to see, if you pay attention, that it's not just expressed through the issue of race. Although at first pass, that's the easiest one to see. It's definitely a big one. But the Walters are our neighbors. They're our brothers no matter who we are, and no matter if we live in North or South America, Africa, Asia, or Europe, they are the central human experience being discussed, but in an African-American context, that is probably the first time that has happened. And that's what's exciting and beautiful, and I'll say, uh, very American about this play.
1: Yes, we're going to look at a lot of complexities going on in the relationships, and their complexities that all families share Now, um, the play opens at the Barrymore Theater in March of 1959, and it ran for 530 performances, and it won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Play of the Year, beating out Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams. That's heavyweight competition. Uh, This was remarkable for many reasons. For one, it took... 150 investors, and an entire year to raise the money to produce the show. She was the youngest American ever to win the award, the first black woman to win it, and only the fifth woman to win. Uh, The white press of the day applauded the play for not being only a Negro play, quotation marks, but one with universal drama. Of course, Hansberry agreed, but also said, I don't think there's anything more universal in the world than man's oppression to man. And uh, this, of course, is the paradox you're talking about, uh, Christy, because she's saying, yes, it's about the universality of man, but it's also about the African-American experience. It is both of these things simultaneously. She further explained that one of the most sound ideas in dramatic writing is that in order to create the universal, you have to pay great attention to the specific.
0: I really think that is her genius, and she truly understood that's a very theological and philosophical idea. Uh, She writes about black identity. We're going to see that. We're going to talk about generational conflict. There's class conflict. There's feminism. There's this basic idea of the American dream, and she's making insightful and independent arguments about each one of these things, and she does it. Very seamlessly and really inoffensively, uh, to use her own words, one time she described William Shakespeare, and he said, and she said that he showed, and I'm gonna, this is her quote, "genuine heroism, which must naturally emerge when you tell truth about people." And I feel like that's the same thing that you can say about her. Um, contemporary Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs said in a le- lecture at Cambridge that. I wish I could have said I went to it, but I heard the podcast. But he says this, and I think this is a really important thing to understand as you read this play. Human life is a fugue between our commonality and our differences. If we were completely different, we could not communicate. If we were completely alike, we'd have nothing to say. He went on to argue that we need both. We, we need the universals and we need the particulars. I think that's exactly what Hansberry has done, and we're going to come back to this very important idea over and over again as we discuss her life uh, and her work. She's able to encapsulate the universality of her theme in the particulars of this particular context. So, Gary, let's talk about the context. What is the world of Lorraine Hansberry?
1: Well, I'm going to stick particularly to the 1950s, of course she's born in 1930. And we're not going to go back into the 30s and the 40s. We're going to go to the 50s because the book is the product most directly of of that decade. Um, So I want to pull some things out of the 1950s. And so the play is a product of this rapidly changing American society of the 50s. And remember, this is post-World War II. We've entered into the most rapid cultural change that the nation's ever seen directly because of the war. Um, So it's a time of cultural crossover in the 50s, it's so interesting. There were so many points we were looking to have crossover between black and white culture. Uh, one of the most, uh, well, one of the biggest examples of that is Elvis Presley uh, as they were looking for a white boy that could sing black music, and he was the crossover. And, and May it we say a huge...
0: he's a Memphis boy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, you can. Um, jazz music was growing in popularity, and, and jazz was... Uh, It it provided this crossover atmosphere for black and white culture. Uh, Lorraine is married to a white man, which is highly unusual, but part of that crossover effect. Uh, The audiences coming to her play were racially mixed. Uh, Black audience goers were showing up in record numbers for the first time because of this play. And so those are some direct effects of the play. But this milieu of the 1950s, some really important things were going on. Obviously, it's a very important decade for the civil rights movement. Uh, by 1948, the military is desegregated, which is seen as kind of the, the opening shot of federal approval of, of integration. Um, also at the same time she's creating these characters, we finished the Korean War, which is traumatic in its own right with the American public. We are knee-deep in McCarthyism during this time period. Um... By the time we're ending and finishing up the Korean War, we're right on the heels of jumping in the Vietnam War. By the mid-1950s, we're helping the French out in Vietnam in an advisory role, and that role grows all the way as we move towards the 60s. Uh, But in 1954, along with this initial involvement in Vietnam, we have the Brown versus Topeka Board of Education case, which immediately um, impacts public schools across the nation. And uh, it's seen seems a challenge of the federal government versus states' rights. And that's going to be a constant theme, the power of the federal government uh, dealing with states.
0: What did the federal government say?
1: That, well, the federal government is going to weigh in on the side of desegregation and civil rights. And what you end up with are states who are resisting the implementation of federal laws. And actually, the core of the civil rights movement is enforcement of the 14th and 15th amendments. They were amendments that were a hundred years old by the time this book is, well, not quite a hundred, but they were almost a hundred years old, but not being enforced in many states. And so that's the the germination of that civil rights movement is using the power of the federal government to force the states to support these things.
0: Well, I, I think it affects her in a very, that particular point affects her, uh, very personally, you said she was born in 1930. She was the fourth kid, seven years younger, to the next uh, youngest one. And I was pull, pulling out some stuff out of her biography that was, you know, really collected by her uh, husband, her ex husband, after her death. But in it, she says that her childhood was very happy in Chicago, although her family wasn't very affectionate, they were extremely affluent. Um, Carl Hansberry founded the Lake Street Bank. He founded the first bank, one of the first banks for blacks in Chicago, and he was a very successful real estate investor. So she came from a very wealthy black family, but because of the segregation that you're talking about, you know, she didn't go to the nice schools that other you know white kids were going to. She had to go to the black schools, which were generally poorer and had worse facilities and bad books and and all those kinds of things Uh, and they didn't live of course in uh, the nice part of town the black part of town was predominantly poor although there were nice homes I'm sure she had a nice home I haven't seen the picture of it Uh, but you know her dad clearly was not happy with with the way that his future was being restricted and so he decided to blow that up uh, he did this crazy thing uh, with some of his real estate buddies, and they secretly bought a house on the corner of 413 East 60th Street and Six uh, and South Roads Avenue, which was in a white neighborhood, and then they moved in and sued, together with the NAACP, to end Chicago's restrictive covenants. Now, this is interesting because this is what happens in the play. Somebody right. moves into a white neighborhood. But unlike the play, you know, we follow it through. It took him 25 years, and he spent uh, a lot of his own personal money. But he got this case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and he won. It's a famous case, uh, Hainsbury versus Lee. And ultimately, they were able to open up 30 blocks of Southside Chicago uh, for African Americans to live in. However... uh, Hansberry when she talks about this in her book it's not a positive experience and what the family had to pay was a horrible price they moved out of the black community where they had where she had friends and was safe and she went into this white neighborhood that she describes as hellishly hostile she said I'm going to quote her there were literally howling mobs surrounding her house And they would throw stuff at them. And one of the bricks that they threw through the window almost killed her when she was eight years old. So she can vividly remember that. She'd have to walk to the black schools. And on her way, she was spit on, cursed, and pummeled uh, from her white neighbors. And this is um, during her early formative years. Her mother desperately patrolled the house at night with a Um, loaded German Luger while her dad was in Washington, D.C. at the Supreme Court, um, protecting the children from potentially people that were going to come in and, of course, um, shoot at them, which I don't think happened. But in an article or a letter to the editor from the New York Times dated 1964, um, Hansberry says that what this event did to her own family is that it caused her dad basically to, to die early.
1: Well, that's interesting because that comes right in the middle of uh, where we're going with the 1950s. By the time we hit 1955, she is a young woman in her mid-20s. She's in her formative part of her writing, and 1955 is a huge year. That's the year Rosa Parks um, is arrested. Uh, That's the year that the Montgomery bus boycott is organized and Martin Luther King begins to come to prominence, but... The thing that stands out in 1955, if you're from Chicago, is the Emmett Till murder. Emmett Till was a, a teenage boy from Chicago that one summer had gone down to visit relatives down in Mississippi and was murdered while he was there. And his uh, murder was particularly gruesome. And uh, his mother, when they brought the body back, had uh, an open cask so the world could see how badly mutilated her son had been by um, the people down in Mississippi and these are the the things right in the middle of her formative writing all these stories are are churning and not only that there's a subtext of a cold war going on we're entering into the space race with the Soviets we've got the Little Rock 9 integrating schools in Little Rock Arkansas Um, the the Civil Rights Act of 1957 gets finally pushed through by the federal government so there were the decade of the 50s alone is uh i don't know if we would use the word scarring but impacting on everybody
0: well there's a lot of social changes she of course goes to the university of wisconsin after she graduates in 1948 but after two years she's done with that and she moves to new york city and really gets involved in a lot of the social protests and these little acting groups and you mentioned that she married uh, the Jewish writer, um, Robert Nemiroff. I think she's, I don't really know how to say his last name. Nemiroff. <laughs> Nemiroff. Nim- um, she met him at a protest at NYU, and she was protesting the fact that black athletes weren't allowed to compete there. So um, there's a lot, I think, that would make a young black girl very angry and very resentful a lot of the circumstances of her life, but yet there's a lot of exciting things going on. And I think the play reflects that and that it's not dark. It's not angry. I mean, I know she was probably angry at times, but the play isn't angry. The play is hopeful and and optimistic, which I think is a really nice thing. Uh, She married that guy in 1953 uh, at her parents' home in Chicago. And of course, he was the one. That encouraged her to um, get into playwriting because before that she had been a journalist uh, for a local journal there in New York. Uh, They actually divorced before her death, but they were always really, really close. I read some articles uh, that there's actually probably credible speculation that she was a lesbian. But at that time, it was illegal. And there were serious criminal and legal and probably professional ref, um, repercussions for that kind of a lifestyle. So that's kind of been suppressed. And so I haven't seen any, you know, super, I haven't seen her coming out and talking about that in any of the biographical things that I've read about her. But other people have said that had a part. Uh, and of course, her divorce. And, and her husband was really supportive of her even after her death. He compiled all of her things and, Wrote a play celebrating her life called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. He edited and published three of her other plays that she herself never got to publish. So they were very close all the way to the end. Um, Another thing I guess this would be a good time to say is that her ending was kind of a sad a sad thing. Yeah,
1: it was at such a young age. Tell us about that.
0: Well, she dies uh, from pancreatic cancer. In 1963, she's diagnosed, and she spent two years in and out of hospitals and died in January of 1965. And of course, uh, even while she was seriously struggling with cancer, she was still giving lectures, giving essays, and she worried about, oh, I'm not struggling enough. I'm not fighting hard enough. My body is giving out and I feel like I'm wet, but she wanted to come to the South and pick up, you know, this is, uh, I guess Dr. King. I don't, I don't know who she wanted to be in
1: 1965. Well, sorry to interrupt you here, but, but the civil rights movement by 1965 has taken off in several directions. Now, Martin Luther King is probably the most highest profile leader of the civil rights movement, but there are college led college student-led civil rights movements. There's a there's a northern civil rights movement that's rat- radically different from the southern civil rights movement, but by 65, it's in full bloom.
0: So she really did want to be a part of, of all of that exciting things. So she saw her world con- changing. She saw herself as contributing. Her father had contributed. This was a legacy. So there's a lot of promise there uh, that remained, of course, um, un- unended, I guess, because... Of her death so early um what the math would be if she was born in i guess 35 34 35 mm-hmm. in 1965 so uh i think that's uh all i have in terms of her history i didn't want to talk a minute about the play itself unless there's anything else we need to include. no i think
1: we've set the time frame
0: all right well the original title of this play was not raising in the sun but the crystal stair and this was a play on a different Langston Hughes poem that we'll probably do during the supplemental called Mother to Son, which is probably one of my favorite plays by Langston Hughes. Uh, But so she liked that play too, and she wanted that poem too, and she wanted to name this play after that poem, but as she continued to write, this idea of dreams kept coming out really uh, through the different characters, and so she pulled up this other Langston Hughes play Called Harlem, uh, and uh, it's this play that kind of inspired, or I don't know if the play inspired the the poem, didn't inspire the play. The poem inspired the title uh, of the play. And speaking of other inspirations, I think it's cute. She based the character of her mom, or character of Mama, in the play off of her own mom. The big Walter uh, was her own dad. Walter Lee and Ruth, which are kind of the main characters in the play, are composites of the personality of her brothers and their wives, but she says she's Beneatha,
1: Which is why it's always important to do these introductions to these books and goes along with my whole premise that these writers write out of their experience. They write out of the decades they live in, they write out of their family experiences. Um, they, they're not creating people out of thin air. They're creating people that they know to tell a story they want to tell. That's why it's important to know this background.
0: It's just interesting, and she owns it. And Benita is a hysterical character. She's so fun and and yet unlikable uh, sometimes, too. And uh, you really do uh, see them as real, real human beings. Um, I want to talk uh, about the poem. Um, You want to read it for us and then we'll go through it. It's just like three sentences long.
1: What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode?
0: So what we have here are just Three sentences, three questions, or four questions, and then an answer, but not an answer. Um, The question is, what happens to a dream deferred? And that's a really, that's that's the question. What happens if I put off my dreams? And the answer is a series of rhetorical questions. And each one of these rhetorical questions is meant to um, arouse some sort of sensory reaction. Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? You know, that you're supposed to visualize a hot day maybe and this raisin sitting out in the sun. And then they, I kind of think they get progressively worse. Fester like a sore. That's kind of a tactile image. And then run. You can think of a boil oozing over. Does it stink like rotten meat? That's a foul smell. Crust and sugar over like syrupy sweet. That's interesting because sometimes I'll ask my kids in class, Crust and sugary over like syrupy sweet. Negative or positive? And they, uh, they all go, positive! Because they're <laughs> thinking about food and school. And there's nothing negative about that. But you're going to see, especially in one of the characters in this book, that niceness can be evil. Okay. And I think that's what this Always is. Always true. Yes. Crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet. It's, it's a negative one. So these are all very, very, very negative images. And then there's a space. And then she says, maybe it just sags. Or he says, Langston Hughes actually wrote this, like a heavy load. Or does it explode? Boom. And you can think now that you know that this is from the civil rights era or even pre-civil rights era, this is maybe militant even. The idea being your dreams are going to blow up and this of course is a dream about dreams this is a play about dreams that can blow up but you have to fight so resiliency resiliency is the core thematic idea I think that she wants to introduce during the title and she's going to carry it all the way through to the very end
1: I'm going to put you on the spot oh dear um, look at these uh, references in these poems. First of all, I'm wondering, uh, when I talk about the dream deferred, did Martin Luther King use this idea in his letter from a Birmingham jail when, the, when he starts off his letter by saying, we've been asked to wait?
0: Well, maybe so. You know, He he speaks about dreams Especially every time. Especially the, the, yeah. the uh, 1963
1: March on Washington speech.
0: Well, yeah. So the idea of, of African Americans really taking hold of this idea that we own the American Dream too, and we're going to claim it is really a theme I think in a lot of these writers and, and this militancy. How militant are they going to be? Was really the debate within the Black community, and you had I think different uh, different leaders, you know, professing how do we get this dream? We're going to are we going to go this route or or another route?
1: Which is interesting because Hansberry was a contemporary of W. E. B. Du Bois. Uh, and W.E.B. Du Bois really represents the northern version of the civil rights movement, and it is more aggressive.
0: That guy had been in her house as a kid. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, like I said, she'd had a direct experience with him. And, uh, and there was large disagreement between the northern version of the, of the civil rights movement and the southern version of it, whether that be through uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, or whether it's exemplified through Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So, they were diff- very different perspectives.
0: Genre, last point to make. Okay. Uh, it's a play. It's not a, it's not a novel. So that means there's no narration. Uh, everything is going to be either dialogue or stage directions, uh, which, of course, both are important. Um, it's a three-act play. Now, three-act plays are unique. They're different than maybe five-act plays or one-act plays. Act one, you're supposed to have the exposition, which means you introduce the setting, you introduce the characters, you introduce the inciting incident, then uh, the first maybe plot point. Act two, you're going to get all the complications. There's going to be some sort of reversal of fortune, meaning things are going to look terrible. And then, of course, act three, you're going to get the climax and everything is going to conclude and reach a, a state of calm of hopefully by the end of the play. So this is a very classic strategy, and it's a, and she uses a very classic approach. It's exactly what she does. Act 1, we're going to meet this family. Uh, we're going we're to introduce this insurance check. So the family gets $10,000 of insurance money. By the end of Act 1, really we see the dispute, and it looks like Walter's not going to get the money. Walter wants the money. The son wants the money. He has a dream that he wants to fulfill, and it's going to take this money in Act Two, we're going to get all these obstacles and conflicts between these people, and of course, at, at the end of Act Two, uh, we find out that uh, the money's been stolen, at least part of it, and they've bought this house. And they're going—the white people don't want them to move into this neighborhood. And of course, in Act Three, it's resolved uh, by Walter finally becoming a man, and he's going to decline to let the whites buy him out. And at that moment, the play ends with a very with a sense of peace and kind of positivity as they get ready to move into a racially divided neighborhood, which everybody knows probably won't be peaceful.
1: <laughs> it's ominous, an <laughs> ominous piece.
0: It is kind of interestingly ominous. And, um, you know, one of the things that people have, have said and I thought was kind of funny is that they asked um, Lorraine Hansberry, why did you make it so... Um, such a happy ending. And she says, well, if you think that's a happy ending, I happen to know what happens when you move into those neighborhoods. <laughs> so she leaves it ambiguous, but yes. it does it does feel happy.
1: Uh, just a side note about students reading this. Do they have any trouble reading uh, play directions and a dialogue and keeping up with it and since it's so different from reading a book?
0: Well, we read it out loud, so they love that, because otherwise I say go home and read chapter one, and with plays, plays are meant to be read out loud, and you can enjoy them more when you're listening to them than just reading it, and this play has so much dialogue, It's and it's contemporary, and it's funny, I mean, it might be the most, the, everyone's favorite book.
1: There's a lot of character development through the dialogue, you really find out who these people
0: are. And they're, they're not perfect. They're not perfect people at all. All right. So I think we're ready to jump into the text. We'll do that next time.
1: Next time on How to Love Lit Podcast. If you like what you heard today, hit subscribe. Join us for the journey. Check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Skywriting, whatever we're using at the time period. But uh, come along with us. Peace out.